0: You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And uh, before we begin today, I want to remind you that there is a website associated with this podcast. It's wealthformula.com. Go check that out. Lots of uh, potential resources you may find interesting. It's also where you can sign up for our investor Club for accredited investors. Uh, you can also potentially uh, sign up for our course in our Wealth Formula Network community. Uh, that actually has a microsite itself. If you want to check that out at WealthFormulaRoadmap.com. Anyway, as for today, I was thinking about this. You know, you know, I was in uh, I was in high school when the Berlin Wall came down. I think I think I was like in tenth grade or something, and. The ensuing decade uh, was really like none other that I have experienced in my life. It was the 1990s, and during that time, there was no more Cold War, you know. Decades of fear of nuclear annihilation vanished into thin air, and 9-11 had not yet happened, so we didn't really know or feel this new world of terrorism that, uh, that sort of followed in the following decade. Um, It could be that I was young and stupid, which I'm sure I was, but life seemed good, right? It seemed fairly safe and everybody kind of got along. The news of the day was about like Monica Lewinsky's stained dress and political conflict really seemed ludicrous, but it really was pretty benign. Um, Back then, I used to think, you know, because of the way uh, this progressed in my life, these sort of things just seemed to be getting better than that. That The world just got better with time. It would just evolve and the conflicts start to go away. But in the last 20, 30 years, I've realized that it's actually more of a pendulum. You know, there's no doubt that we live in turbulent times. The country's horribly divided to the point where rational individuals have brought up the idea of a national divorce, which um, I'm not, definitely not in favor of. And um, Ronald Reagan is rolling in his grave hearing about this. So nevertheless, as crazy as these times may seem, we should keep in perspective that we have seen worse. In 1861, for example, we actually did have a civil war. And as for cultural wars, all you got to do is go back to 1968, see what was going on then, and compare it with now. And you say, you know, now might be pretty tame. Of course, I don't need to tell you that the United States has had numerous economic booms and busts throughout our history. Bottom line is that history does not necessarily repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. And my guest on today's Wealth Formula podcast episode is an esteemed historian that has recognized specific historical patterns and suggests that they are highly predictable. In fact, he says that we are in the final stage of an 80-year cycle right now. So find out what that's all about With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Neil Howe. Neil is an acclaimed historian, economist, and demographer, and the best selling author of The Fourth Turning. He is considered by some of the nation's leading thinker on today's generations, who they are, what motivates them, and how they will shape America's future. He's also managing director of demography at Hedgeye Risk Management and an independent. Financial risk firm, as well as president of Life Course Associates, which serves hundreds of corporate, nonprofit, and government clients. Neil, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me, Doc.
0: So, um, first of all, this is a uh, as an aside. I thought it was interesting. The producer of the show mentioned that you coined the term millennial. Is that right?
1: Yes, uh, that was a book. I wrote with Bill Strauss, uh, back in 1991. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, it was a history of America told as a sequence of generational biographies. And we were sort of somewhat surprised. No one had done that before. Uh, we did it. We started with the Puritan, uh, great migration to new England in the 1630s. Uh, we went all the way up to the present and, uh, lo and behold, there was, uh, the uh the from the 14th generation had not yet been named they were just kids being born and uh we expected that their first cohort born around 1982 would be the high school class of 2000 so we named them millennial
0: oh, uh wow. interesting so
1: yeah and that was um but it was it was it took a while for the name to catch on uh, during most of the 1990s uh they were called uh, Gen Y or something like that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sort of the, the letter after X, uh, but not too long after 2009-11, uh, uh, um, people began to actually see who these kids were as they started becoming adults, and they realized it was a very different generation, and, and millennials did catch on.
0: Yeah, Interesting. Well let's uh let's pivot back to uh I guess the, the what's relevant to our show. Um you are um, you know a historian that's interested in looking at human cycles that that also drive economic cycles. And uh specifically as it goes with your book The Fourth Turning. Um why don't we start with that? What are the four turnings?
1: Well, this is um we, we started out by talking about generations, and uh, my, my first interest was simply, and those and, and to interest, too, we wrote together for, for a good while, was in looking at um, generations themselves, differences in generations, awareness of generations. And we found uh, uh, many people my age, we came of age with the late 60s and 70s. Everyone was talking about generations back then, uh but then by the late 80s no one was talking about it you know what i mean that there's sort of waves when we talk about generations and we're aware of differences and then we don't well we found that people had been talking about these differences all the way back all of american history and not only that but these generations tended to follow each other in a certain kind of pattern right uh every time we have a a very idealistic uh crusading uh generation like uh, boomers were you get kind of a pragmatic, cynical exergeneration. that it, that it was nothing new. We saw the same thing after the the, the transcendental generation of, of Abraham Lincoln and and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Walt Whitman. We got you know the Gilded Generation of Mark Twain and and, and Ulysses Grant. And the more we looked at these patterns, Buck, the more we realized that these patterns are actually. Uh, closely linked to a pattern that historians have often noticed about American history, about you know political and economic rhythms, long-term rhythms, and that is that about once every long human lifetime, we have this period of huge um, uh, public uh, mobilization and sort of civic makeover of American society. We had it in the um, the Glorious Revolution during the colonial era, a period of revolt and revolution in the, in the late 17th century. About a decade later, we had the American Revolution. Excuse me, a lifetime later, we had the American Revolution. A lifetime later, the Civil War. A lifetime later, the uh, the Great, Great Depression, New Deal, and World War II. And a lifetime later, here we are, right? Uh, the title of my book is The Fourth Turning is Here. Uh, because since the GFC, we have been in this period. Right, it's going to be a generation-long era. It won't end until uh, the end of the 2020s, probably the beginning of the 2030s. Um, and these eras have predictable similarities. And and um, and interestingly. Halfway in between these crises, we have the great awakenings of American history. You know, we we're not we're not rebuilding the outer world, we're rebuilding, we're rebuilding the inner world of, of religion and and values and culture and art. And most recently we had the 1960s and 70s, which was our some historians call that America's fourth or fifth great awakening, right? So these are patterns and they're related to a pattern, you know, we we sort of Put these in a certain kind of order we call them turnings right mm-hmm. so like seasons of the year uh you start out with a first turning uh sort of like the spring season um most recently we recall the american high the presidencies of, of truman and eisenhower and john kennedy a period when institutions are strong individuals were weak a period of social conformity and a great sense of sort of collective progress right
0: so when you when you when you're breaking these down like what's I mean, just so we can kind of get on the same page. Like, what is the first turning? What's the second turning? Like, just broad well, that's, strokes.
1: That's where I'm going with you. Okay. Here. Okay. So that's the first turning. That's an example of the first. Uh, okay. Turn, got right? it. Got it. It always comes after a crisis, right? So the crisis is over, and there's a everyone rallies around this new, newborn sense of community. Right? Okay. The second turning, the summer, is a period when uh, individuals attack that social conformity everyone wants to throw off all that social obligation all those rules and in the 1960s it started in universities people wanted to throw off the patriarchy the family and then finally it was in the economy everyone wanted deregulation and tax cuts so all all parties and ideologies sort of participated in this individuation of american society and then the third turning we call the unraveling and that is the opposite of a high that's the period that most recently that would be the late 1980s the 1990s uh, the early 2000s and that's a period when individualism is strong institutions are weak you go into a bookstore recently and every book is about you know uh, me myself and I and how powerful I am and but all the downbeat books are about everything we share in common, right? The end of the family, the end of society. The, that's the mood of a of a of a of a third turning, uh, cynicism, bad manners, distrust of public institutions, and you see these are the decades like the Roaring nineteen nineties or the Roaring twenties or the eighteen fifties, seventeen sixties. You can see these earlier decades, but his great shows that every third turning eventually ends in a fourth turning and a fourth turning is a period of crisis and it's a period where we regain a sense of community by the by the time it's over and a new sense of public trust and i think that's where we're going as tumultuous and as uh, as scary as this era is and has been both in the economy and in politics um we think that it has a a um uh, a really decisive ending, and it shifts history back. It, it shifts the saculum back uh, to uh, a place where America hasn't been for a long time. That is to say, you know, in, in the summer season, no one wants order. Everyone wants the community to be less powerful and individualism to be stronger. By the end of this journey, um people want community to be stronger and individualism to be weaker. And I think you can see that in the generation coming of age. Boomers are coming of age in the late 60s and 70s. They definitely wanted individuals stronger and institutions weaker. Millennials are coming of age in this fourth turning. And I think they want the opposite. I think they want institutions to be stronger, to protect people better. They're risk averse. They want the security that those institutions will bring. And they don't mind individualism being weaker. Um, and I think one symptom of that is you see uh, the millennials are um, strongly supportive of the party that happens to represent community today, which happens to be the Democratic Party, and that's simply a fact on the ground. Generation X is, on the other hand, is older. They're they're being, they're obviously in midlife right now, and they support. Much more supportive of the, of the Republican Party. In fact, they're one of the most Republican-leaning generations uh, we've seen, you know, since the Lost, you know, born in the 1890s. So we see some striking changes. And our method really is to follow generational cohorts through their lives and seeing how these generations, as they're shaped beyond, as children coming of age, as young adults, go on to shape history as they become parents and leaders.
0: How does the uh, how do you see the, uh, uh, the the parallels here with what's going on in the economy d- uh, during these periods of times? So I'm just curious if you can. Uh, you've well, s- certainly talked about the um, you know some of these patterns, but do you do you have shadowing patterns in the economy?
1: I mean, the last two four turnings were actually precipitated by, or the catalyst was, a great global balance sheet crash and recession. Uh, It was Black Thursday, October 24th, 1929, which quickly quickly spread across the world. Um, And most recently, it was um, the GFC, the Global Financial Crisis of late 2008, which had a similar impact. And, And it also became global. It was also a very durable balance sheet recession. They both had the same decade over decade slowing impact on GDP per capita growth. And it's in the wake of this recession that a lot of millennials came of age and, and uh, came of age with very pessimistic expectations about future standard of living growth. And I think one of the great hallmarks of our era is how younger people, not only uh, millennials, but a lot of Xers are no longer uh, by age 30 or age 40 earning more than their parents. In fact, boys are generally earning less than their fathers today and a record share of them are living at home. Exactly what happened in the 1930s, by the way. Uh, We all remember those Frank Capra movies like, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington with all of, you know, many generations living in one big Victorian home, right? That's happening again today. Um, And I think, too, globally and geopolitically, we see the same trends. Um, Globalization is in full retreat after 2008. Um, global trade, as a share of global product, reached its peak in 2007. It's generally been declining ever since. The same thing happened in 1929. We reached our peak. We were declining throughout, particularly after the Smoot-Hawley tariff and, and, uh, and, and uh, all of the trade policies of the 30s. That was also in decline. We saw authoritarian populism raging around the world in the 1930s. In fact, in the 30s, it was generally thought There were only two choices. You either became communist or fascist. There was no middle anymore. Capitalism failed. Liberal democracy failed. And I think in the same kind of mood today, you look around the world, right? You see authoritarian populism in South America. You see it in Southern Europe. You see it in India, the Philippines, China, um, uh, Burma. I mean, you go around the world today, you see this as a rising trend. And um, we do cite polls and many of them uh, showing that millennials today around the world have much less trust in democracy than older generations. Not only today, but if you go back and look at older generations, you know, in their twenties and thirties, had much more trust than millennials today. So this is a a moment of real political instability around the world. Um, Ten years ago, uh, no one even did polls on civil war in America. You know what I mean? No one even pulled it. It just seems so outlandish. Today, you'll find about half of Americans think that's likely in the near future. We, we also see the threat of geopolitical conflict in a way we never had before. Now, these are, again, do I have to remind you the parallels to the 1930s, right? This idea of scaling up and the, 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 the priority of community above individual. Was a strong theme of the 1930s, um, and it's becoming a strong theme today. Um, and I think it's particularly, as always, um, embodied in the rising generation today. And but we see this pattern again and again. This is not something new. Uh, this is, and and I think we should we should recognize that there's a certain familiarity to this. We've seen it before. We see it again. And I will say that the generations who knew how to make big institutions work are who, because they built them during crisis, are all dying out, right? And and I think this is also some, a pattern we see again and again. Uh, certain lessons need to be relearned, and certain skills simply disappear, and and new habits have to be relearned.
0: How often um, does a fourth turning end up in war
1: um historically almost always uh not only war i mean there are wars all the time i mean you know there, there's almost every generation long period in american history there's been some war um but i think what's what's uh, a lesson for history is it is that these tend to be these tend to be Uh, very urgent wars these tend to be total wars uh, during fourth turnings and you know going all the way back for the last six or seven centuries um, all total wars have been in a fourth turning every fourth turning has had a total war right I mean the examples I just gave you I think you you recall uh, is is a war necessary for a fourth turning I don't know I don't know the answer to that I will say this That a sense of strong urgency and a sense of survival uh, for the nation to motivate people to create a new community where before there has just been partisanship, division, um, and um, uh, complete institutionalized dysfunction on the national level is a property of the climax of all four turnings, right? Uh, you wonder where America would be in the late 1930s when we were a completely divided nation over the New Deal if that had just been run at fast forward and that was never resolved, right? Or the Civil War if we had just been frozen in place, right? Um, no, these things do resolve, and, and very often conflict is part of the resolution.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess the reason I'm asking is, again, trying to figure out where, you know, when you look at where we are right now, what brings the nation together, a nation that as you mentioned, um, you know, people literally talking about civil war, what brings people together potentially, um, for that yeah, first right. turning, it's like potentially an extrinsic, uh, type of, uh, enemy. And, um, you know, is that a requirement? I guess I'm just trying to figure out how do you get from where we are to what you're describing as a first, first turning.
1: It's 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 very hard to predict. It will and my my estimation is it will end one way or the other. Um, and but it's very hard to predict in advance. If you had asked Americans in 1936 or 37 uh, that there was going to be a big crisis, what would it be? Would it be you know, internal or external? I think they always said internal, right? Uh, we had we had Republicans thinking the 1930s was the red decade and we had popular front supporters of FDR saying it was the fascist decade. You can understand how people would have predicted it back then, right? But interestingly, we ended up in a very different place. And uh, and I actually narrate the histories of these different fourth turnings and kind of go through the story of how knife-edge the balance is, like which way would tip, right? When When Abraham Lincoln was elected, Uh, His secretary of state was uh, William Seward, who was, you know, also a very prominent Republican and Seward's April 1st memorandum just after Lincoln swore into office was that uh, Lincoln should immediately declare war on Britain, France, and Spain (laughs) to distract America from the Well, Lincoln turned down that (laughs) proposal, but that's crazy. You know, that isn't going to do the trick. You know, we already have, it's deep South has already seceded. Um, but
0: you understood what was going on in Seward's Mod, right? So, you know, obviously as a historian, one of the reasons we study history is so that we can understand, um, you know, lessons from the past, how to deal with crises. And so if you look at where, what we know and what you're studying, uh, what you've studied um, in your career, you know, what can history teach us about dealing with this Crisis state that we're in right now, and emerging it, emerging from it.
1: Well, I think it, it can tell us a lot. Uh, you know, first of all, it can just it can just root us in uh, in part of it, get rid of a sense of connectedness, both of their past and our future. I often tell people that they have a tremendous personal contact with others over time. I think think about uh, like the oldest person you knew when you were a small child. Right. right and think about the youngest person you will know before you pass away right think of their think of their combined lifespans I like to call that your personal history span right
0: yeah
1: I bet you it extends over 220 230 years
0: uh-huh.
1: that's as long as the United States has been around and and I often tell people we need to think about all they've been through all your kids are going to be through we're, we're so often taught that history is nothing but a lot of random technological changes and accidents that your 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 children's world is going to be utterly different from yours, right? You have no connection to them, really. You have no connection to your parents. I try to root people in time better. And I also think that there's some lessons for us moving into the fourth turning. Some of them have to do with family life. Some of them have to do with politics and the economy. In family life, Government is going to be busy probably in the climax of the fourth turning. It may be less generous for your benefits. you know you may not have the the resources to protect you to be the kind of safety net you're accustomed to and I often tell people that families become much more important during fourth turning so one lesson I have particularly for younger people and and a lot of boomers too who've got alienated from the family, is reconnect with your family. They will be very important to you and and you know, I'm a financial advisor, right? So people are often asking me, you know, what should my portfolio be? You know, how should I invest? How should I diversify, right? Should I, how do I get out? You know, all the usual questions. And the first question I say is, well, first of all, what, what's your long-term care insurance plan? Right, right. <laughs> you know, there is no affordable long-term care insurance. Just forget it. There's nothing you can buy. There's only one long-term care insurance. That's family and friends. And if you're not connected with them, Going into this era, you need some repair work to do. Uh, that's one of my most important pieces of advice. I think when it comes to the economy, a diversification has to be much broader than it usually is. We sometimes think about style factor diversification, but when you have a big crisis, you know all, all of the um, all of the correlations go to one right, particularly across a single economy. So we have to think about diversification much more radically in terms of different kinds of assets, uh, like commodities. You know, uh, even something like a you know a hard asset that people usually don't own, like just having a little bit in gold or something like that. And geographic, genuine geographic diversification becomes much more important. Uh, you know, in, in in these kinds of events, I also think fixed income assets are. A nominally fixed income of assets are probably not very good because these tend to be prone to surges of enormous inflation. In fact, inflation is one of the ways government pays off its debt. This always happens during every fourth turning, right? I mean, that's one way government gets out from under its debt, right? So if you're if you're locked into a fixed income asset, you're you're rendering yourself vulnerable. Uh, you want something which is a real asset. Which uh, uh, and and hopefully one that is not too subject to onerous you know regulation or even confiscation you know at a time of crisis. So I also think commodities always come back in fourth turnings. Um, they already are. In fact, we see a lot more attention to commodities today. Uh, you know, in other words, materials and energy. If you want to look at that in the S and P sector terms. Manufacturing is even more important because fourth turnings are always eras when we rebuild the outer world. Remember, we're not going to be rebuilding the inner world. We're going to be rebuilding the outer world. And so manufacturing is important. Defense, obviously. And we've already seen a recovery in defense. I mean, countries around the world are already amping up, right? Uh, Not only due to the invasion in the Ukraine, but due to the uh, prospect of, of hostilities in the Western Pacific. So these are trends that have already started. Uh, they will accentuate. Um, I think private equity, so long as it's unleveraged, is a great bet. I say so long as it's unleveraged because, again, you get into that problem of, you know, leveraging becomes very perilous at a time when God knows when you can roll the loan over, Right. So these are some tips, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time, but you, you wanted to know a few things and that would be my advice for, 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 the, for the decade coming up.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing about the decade coming up is, and I'm curious in your take on this, uh, first of all, was the fir- was what part of the cycle was the previous, uh, great depression? Would that have been, um,
1: that's the fourth turning. It that's turning why I mean, all the parallels. Yeah, right. that's where right.
0: so, so one of the, you know, I've talked to a, a few different economists concerned about, you know, the demographic cliff that we're headed towards towards the end of this decade uh, with regard to, you know, um, Medicare, Medicaid payments. And on top of that, uh, all of these boomers being out of the work, workforce and uh, drawing in on all the retirement funds. And the concern that that would trigger ultimately, you know, a great depression in the 2030s, that would not coincide with sort of a, a first uh, with a first uh, turning, would it?
1: Uh, that demographic clip is happening right now, so I don't I don't know why they're talking about the 2030s. Um, the some of the biggest cohorts in America were born in from 1959 to 1964. They're all turning, you know, early, you know, the median age of retirement and Social Security is 64 right now. So, you know, you do the math. We're right there. It's happening right now. And it was accelerated by the pandemic. So that's happening as we speak. Um, uh, And the new cohorts coming into the workforce uh, are very small. And I'm not just speaking demographically here. Now, we've been very fortunate thus far post pandemic to have a pretty superheated economy. You know, sure. labor force participation among working, you know, prime age Americans is pretty high. Unemployment rate is pretty low. So, right now, things are pretty good, but the demographic fundamentals are terrible. And in fact, um, by 20, uh, 2026, 2027, this is just sort of OECD UN uh, demographic projections. The working age population in the entire high income world and emerging market world, I'm going to throw in China and and India and Brazil there, is going to be shrinking. I mean, that's amazing. You know, basically the entire economically relevant world, its working age population will be shrinking. This is the first time since Adam Smith wrote, you you know what I mean? This is the first time since the Industrial Revolution that we have had sort of the entire effective global economy shrinking in terms of its effective demographic workforce. So it's in this decade, Buck, that this is happening. Yeah. And we, we saw most dramatically what's been happening in China. Yeah. I was uh, going to ask think. you about the one child
0: yeah. uh, a policy that was there for decades and, you know, how that is going to, in your view, uh, affect China's role in the future economy.
1: Well. I'm telling you, every demographer knew for a long time this was coming. Sure. Um, China played denial, denial, denial. And then at, when it happened, it was covered up statistically. And then when they finally looked, honestly, at the statistics, they just saw this free fall. And right now you have a very small cohort moving into the childbearing ages. So even with the same, you know, what what we demographers call total fertility rate, you're going to have an actual further shrinkage in the births. So the birth numbers in the 2020s in China are going to be disastrous. And you know that plus their rapidly declining productivity growth, their total factor of productivity, if you just look at how much they produce with a given quantity of labor and capital, it's falling as well. So um, I do think this has geopolitical repercussions, namely this uh, power projector eight cents You know, when when China was growing much faster than the rest of the world, there was no reason it should start a conflict. Just wait, you know. Time just makes us stronger and stronger, right? We we don't have to, you know, yes, we have the century of humiliation we have to overcome, right? But we don't have to do anything now. And and the, the way we're going, the West is going to fall apart on its own. Now I think the psychology is changing and actually becoming more dangerous. Now, um, I, I'm in Great Falls, Virginia. I'm outside D.C. I'm, I'm very close contact with a lot of national security people, and I guarantee you that that's not just my thinking. I think a lot of people are thinking that the mood in China is changing. Uh, China no longer believes that time is, you know, is is a is a, is is a, is a wind that it's back. You know, time may be a wind that it's that it's a headwind, and it may need to act. Soon to actually change the mood of its people and to change the facts on the ground, I think this worries uh, uh you know not just economists but but national security
0: touch here and what what is the what is the implications of that what 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 is the thought that uh China would do because of its uh, concerns
1: face down the west I think it's pretty clear I think it's making common cause with uh you know with 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 fellow regimes, certainly with Russia, I think that was very clear in in, in 2022. Uh, it it now you know it, it's likening uh, the United States and uh, and and Australia and New Zealand and, and 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 Japan with the NATO of the West, you know, and it's drawing all these parallels with Russia. They're making common cause. Um, and with a with a number of other regimes as well, I think uh you know north korea and iran and 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 you know many other sort of client nations uh, and I think what they want to do is is at some point um face down the west and show the west that it's not the wave of the future that their prestige is also on on the line right They need to show that that all of the countries they're investing in and so on that they really are the wave of the future that the west really is the the still the imperialist power and that it's in some sense illegitimate and uh at at some point they need to demonstrate that with facts on the ground
0: when you look at uh, globally different countries um which country based on demographics and growth are you most uh, bullish on let's say in the next 10 20 years
1: i would say um Right now, I'm 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 very positive about China. You know, just from a particularly from a demographic point of view, and, and partly just the geopolitical situation, would be Southeast Asian countries other than China, um, who are demographically not too bad. Uh, some of them are still in sort of the Confucian orbit. I mean, all the Confucian culture countries have have pretty negative demographic prospects right now. But a few of them aren't bad. Uh, looking at you know Vietnam and Thailand, uh, Philippines, uh, you know very high fertility rate. It's going to be growing for a long time, and it's an Anglophone population, right? So they know how to speak English. Uh, they have a lot of uh, they have some of the same benefits that India does. Now India is slowing down. You know India is almost uh, all the way down to replacement rate in terms of fertility. India is no longer the great grower that it used to be um uh but Indi- india also is still relatively a promising country and obviously a very large country and a country which is rapidly modernizing under under uh, Narendra Modi um so so that area of the world i think is is also pretty well run um i think that uh, uh, singapore is an alternative for hong kong obviously people are already finding that out it's hard. It's hard to rent a hotel now in Singapore. I hear Taylor Swift is coming soon to Singapore, uh, rather than Hong Kong. And so you know, it really is going to be hard to rent a hotel room. But my point is, is I'm pretty bullish on that area. I'm I'm opportunistically bullish on 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 Latin America, um, and uh, I, uh, Brazil did something pretty good. Uh, they did one thing. Uh, great under Bolsonaro, is they did solve some of their huge pension problem. Uh, one thing that was not noticed, they really did solve a lot of that enormous unsustainability of the Brazilian pension. There are epic stories in Brazil about you can retire at you know fifty five and just uh, just lay out on the beach and collect your checks. You know um, that problem has has been is has been solved. And and as long as they get through near terms, or the political back and forth between left and right, a uh, potentially great future. Um uh, so you know, Latin America somewhere in the middle. I think you know Europe is facing you know huge growth headwinds. I mean southern Europe in particular, right? uh the, the 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 Mediterranean countries in Europe are shrinking at an alarming rate and i think many of these countries i'm talking about portugal spain uh, italy greece and so on these countries are their workforce is shrinking so fast like um, that That even in a normal year their number of employees will shrink faster than their productivity improves in other words they'll have negative gdp even in a normal year so in other words that'll be it, we might even call it an aging recession sort of a Permanently slightly negative GDP growth, um, and 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 Eastern Europe is facing not only poor poor fertility but also um, a lot of emigration, right to 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 Western Europe. Uh, uh, Russia, I don't think we need to comment. That's <laughs> you know start the long list of headwinds for Russia. So
0: fascinating stuff, Neil. Uh, you know it's. Uh you know obviously a huge huge topic and uh, i appreciate your time today um how can people okay so the book itself again is the fourth turning is here uh what the seasons of history tell us about how and when the crisis will end that was released in July I presume it's already on the uh, uh on the amazons and all that right yeah yeah and uh how else can people get a hold of you and, you know, learn what you're doing and what, what you're thinking?
1: Uh, well, we do have a, a subscription service uh, podcast, uh, you know, daily stuff going out, both, both written podcast video. And we actually have a feature that we're going to be starting uh, this month called All About the Indicators, looking monthly at the, the indicators for, for the U.S. economy. And that will be starting on uh, late August uh, on the Substack. So the name of the Substack publication is Demography Unplugged. So that's all you need to know, Demography Unplugged. You go there, uh, it's not very expensive, and it's a great way for people to keep up both with what I say in the book, uh, the fourth turning is here, but also just if you're interested in demographics and the economy moving forward.
0: Phenomenal. Thanks again, Neil. Uh, Love to have you back again sometime in the future.
1: Great. Thank
0: you, Beth. It was great. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Fascinating stuff. Uh, I think this concept of repeating cycles of history and and economics is uh, very interesting, although it's, it's kind of weird. I mean, why why necessarily it would go uh, specifically for a certain number of years and why you could predict it and. So sort of beyond me, but I'm you know less of a social scientist and more of a scientist. So I, I think it's harder for me to understand that, but fascinating nonetheless. Um, anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off.
1: Thank you for listening to the
0: Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment see you next time buck joffrey here from sapia with buck joffrey aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years it's already being done in lab animals so it's just a matter of time our challenge to be healthy enough for when that time comes as a former scientist and surgeon myself my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.